I'd like you to imagine a world without war. Try to imagine that. A world that is at total peace, where there is absolute joy, lasting joy. A world where justice prevails, righteousness rules. We would call that utopia. It's hard to imagine. Uh, imagine a place where uh, everything is right, where there is food in overabundance throughout the entire earth, properly distributed, though the world is filled with people. Try to imagine a world where children can play in snake pits and uh, find the snakes friendly. Or where snakes find the children friendly. I guess that would be a bigger miracle. Try to imagine a world where lions and lambs can walk together in absolute peace. Imagine a world that is ruled by one perfect person with a perfect mind, with perfect motivations, absolutely and completely. Try to imagine a world, and this will be a stretch, where all of the politicians are saints. And that all of evil is instantly stopped by those who help that person rule with a rod of iron. Well, I just described the future world, not as Hal the computer spoke about it, or as pundits today, but as the Bible records, the world of the future called the millennium, a thousand year reign of Christ upon this earth. That's what the Bible calls it. And then after that, the eternal state. Now, all of that, the Bible says, will happen with the event called the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, there is a newspaper type of lettering known as second coming type. It's large banner type that is put on headlines for um, astounding events like the assassination of John F. Kennedy or the inauguration of a president, or the end of a war, they always use second coming type. Interesting phraseology, don't you think? Well, I'll tell you what. With all of those banners and all of those astonishing events, when Jesus does come back to the earth, and He will, that is headline stuff. I don't know what kind of type they're going to invent for that. It's like, we've got to recreate the second coming type. Because this is better than anything that has ever happened before. When that happens, and it will, it will be the culmination of redemptive history. It will be the answer to years of praying by God's people throughout all the ages as we have prayed, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that's going to be great. That's the good news. The bad news is, before the world gets better, especially that good, it's going to get a whole lot worse. And there are a series of events that the Bible predicts will happen. We don't have enough time. I just want to touch on some of those tonight and speak about their fulfillment even in our own times. But I found a poll I wanted to share with you by Time Magazine called Future Poll. They took 800 Americans and asked them a variety of questions. And they found that by according to the poll, by the end of the 21st century, 22% of the people in this poll predict that the earth will be under a one-world government. 11% think there will be a worldwide single religion. And more than half of the people surveyed expect the return of Jesus Christ to occur within this 
millennium. That's quite an astonishing group of opinions because it closely parallels the Bible. Now, when will all this happen? I'm not going to predict exactly what's going to happen. You know, we just had a whole bunch of predictions with his last election. And just about everybody who predicted something was absolutely wrong because there was a new turn of events that happened. But I'll tell you this. Given what is happening now and how you can read so often newspaper headlines and the substance of the articles with Scripture, it's coming very, very soon. So much prophecy that the Bible speaks about that would set up the coming of Jesus Christ has been fulfilled. And Jesus Christ, your Lord and my Lord, said, when these things begin to occur, look up and lift up your head because your redemption is coming very soon. And I think we ought to do that. We ought to be looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. For the next few minutes, I want to answer three questions about what's coming up. First of all, what? So what? And now what? That's easy enough outline. We don't need paper to print that on. What? So what? Now what? The what is the prophecy itself. What does the Bible say will happen coming up to the time when Jesus comes? Well, it says a lot of things. In fact, one-fourth of the entire Bible is prophetic. And you know, the prophecy is simply history written in advance. Now, we can't do that. We can predict certain things. We're usually wrong. But since God knows the end from the beginning, He can write history in advance and tell you what's going to happen before it ever happens. In fact, that is one of God's greatest calling cards. In the Old Testament, God challenges the people of other nations. He says, see if you can do this. I'm going to name something in advance before it happens. I'm going to tell you about it so that when it happens, you'll know that I, the Lord, have spoken. And he basically put out a challenge to all of the other gods and religions. See if you can do that. And of course, nobody can quite like the Lord. Uh, there was a scene in the New Testament. I'm going to set it for you. It's in the 23rd and 24th chapter of the book of Matthew when the disciples and Jesus were in the temple in Jerusalem. They had an argument. I should say Jesus had a discussion that sort of fomented into an argument with the religious elite of his day. And uh, Jesus started speaking about their future. Jesus said as he was coming into Jerusalem, looking over the city, he wept and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together just like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. Then he said, See, your house, the temple, your house, will be left unto you desolate. And not one stone that is there will be left. They will all be turned, overturned, one on top of the other. Well, when the disciples heard this, they were taken quite aback. In fact, four of them approached Jesus, that saying of His still burning in their ears. They wanted to know, well, when is all this going to happen? And why is it going to happen? I mean, if you get rid of Jerusalem, if you take away the temple, there is no Israel. There is no nation for the Messiah to rule. And so they came to him with questions. And they said, Lord, tell us, what will be the sign of your coming? That's the first question. And second question, when will the end of the age be? The end of the world. Now, Jesus answers that question, which forms a bulk of Matthew chapter 24. When it's going to happen, when the end of the world's going to come, 
and a series of events that will precede His coming. The events that precede His coming will find their ultimate fulfillment in a period the Bible calls the Great Tribulation Period. It's that last three and a half year segment of a, of a seven year period the Bible predicts will come upon the earth where God's fury will be poured out as a response to men saying no completely to God. A seven year period of tribulation on the earth. So the signs Jesus gives will find their ultimate fulfillment in crescendo at that time. But once again, Jesus did say, when you see these things begin to take place, that's when you look up, lift up your eyes, because your redemption is drawing near. Let me give you just a couple of them. Again, for time. Jesus predicted that many people will come in His name and claim that He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. There will be a spiritual deception that Jesus promised the future would hold. Now, many have come and claimed to be Christ. It's nothing new. It's always happened. Every now and then you'll find somebody who claims to be the ultimate solution, the answer. Half of them are wingnuts. I've had people come into the church saying, as I mentioned last week, that they were Jesus Christ come in the flesh. Though there have always been people who have predicted such things, there has been an increase of such activity in recent time. And I could give you a few examples. There was some years back a guy by the name of Father Divine. There was Sun Myung Moon who claimed as the Unification Church surrounded him to be the fulfillment of Christ once again. Uh, there were people like Jim Jones of the People's Temple. Uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi that formed Transcendental Meditation. There's a guy out there that, that came 20, 30 years ago and keeps coming back every few years known as Lord Maitreya. And he's come up again recently. And his followers say that he is expected, the one the world has been waiting for, expected by all religious systems. And that when Maitreya comes back, call him what you will, they say, he will speak to all people in their own native language, with their own religious system. They, his followers, claim he is the Christ of the Christians, the Messiah of the Jews. He is Krishna, Imam, Mahdi, Buddha. And his followers say that he is the world teacher to teach everybody the truth. Interesting because the Bible also predicts a coming ruler who will speak to all people and put an end for a period of time to the problems on the earth, he is known as the Antichrist. In fact, Jesus spoke about him, didn't he? He said, I have come in my Father's name and you did not receive me. Another is coming in his own name. Him you will receive. The Bible over and over again speaks about a coming leader who will solve world problems. And with each election, more and more people, at least in our country, are getting tired of politics, tired of politicians in general. Promises made every few years only to be broken during their time in office. And we've heard that over and over again, and that is reflected by fewer amounts of people going out to vote. Oh, what's the... 
Who cares? You know, what's the point of it all? It's much of the same. They have different titles of their parties, but it's all the same stuff. So there's this disillusionment within the hearts of people for leadership, yet all the while they're craving, is there somebody out there that can fix this problem? The world is ripening every year for somebody to come. And the Bible predicts that He will come. And the Bible also predicts, along with Him, there will be a push for global religion. Break down all of the barriers, all of the boundaries, all of the differences. And let's just have one singular religious system. It's interesting in light of that, that an Episcopal bishop by the name of William Swing is spearheading worldwide such a movement in recent times. Uh, he is putting together something called the UR, modeled after the UN, the United Nations. It will be set up basically the same, but rather than uniting the nations, it's to unite the world religions. And he says, quote, the UR will shine the light of the world's spiritual traditions, paganism and occultism included, into a world desperately in need of light. Now, hand in hand with this global push for a one world religion is a push for a one world government that the Bible also predicts will come in latter times. In fact, in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, there is a prediction that the nations of the world will yield their sovereignty to the government set up by this Antichrist, this one world dictator. I was uh, looking on the Internet and I found a number of things that speak to this. Uh, one organization that has uh, garnished quite a following and has gotten some ground and um, press uh, put out something called the Constitution for the Federation of the Earth. And this is what they wrote. Realizing, and it sounds good at first, but listen to the whole thing, realizing that humanity today has come to a turning point in history that we're on the threshold of a new world order. Have you heard that word or phrase tossed around the last few years? Which promises to usher in an era of peace, prosperity, justice, and harmony. And being conscious of our obligation to save humanity from imminent and total annihilation. And being conscious that humanity is one despite the existence of diverse nations, races, creeds, ideologies, and cultures and that the principle of unity and diversity is the basis for a new age when war shall be outlawed and peace prevail, and conscious of the inescapable reality that the greatest hope for the survival of life on earth is the establishment of a democratic world government, we, the citizens of the world, hereby resolve to establish a world federation to be governed in accordance with this constitution for the federation of the earth. And they've set up a governmental system. They say will be headed by one person who will be the president, but there will be this presidium of five executives, the president and four vice presidents who will rule under him calling the shots. Just interesting that these things are creeping up in more abundance recently. Then part of the answer that Jesus gave to the disciples as a sign of his soon return, would be wars and rumors of wars. Now, 
Anybody who has ever lived has seen war or heard of war. It has touched their family, their life somehow. In fact, as far as uh, I can research, only 8% of world history has ever seen times of peace. Only 8% of the world has ever been at one time in peace. Peace treaty broken after peace treaty broken. War after war. In our own time, we have problems in Asia. India and Pakistan that are fighting each other militarily with nuclear proliferation. North Korea has recently stated that there will be inevitably a second Korean War that they plan to fight with South Korea. So much so that U.S. citizens, citizens of troops that are stationed over in Korea, in South Korea, have been given gas masks for the families, just like Israel was given gas masks some years ago when Saddam Hussein pushed the Scud missiles over into Jerusalem. Also, in our present time, there's unrest in parts of the world like East Timor. There's so many of them, you may have not even heard of them. But 300,000 citizens of East Timor had to be moved out so that you, the UN could send their troops in to quell the violence. In Africa, there's been civil wars with the nations of Africa for years and years and years, and they're going on right now. Nations like Ethiopia invading Somalia still. Problems with the Khartoum government bombing refuges and outposts in the Sudan. But, Apart from all of that, there still is one powder keg that the world is watching, has been, and will be watching, and that is the Middle East, Israel in particular, right? There's always problems with Israel. In fact, I told you before, I've been to Israel now 22 times. I used to live over there for a while on a kibbutz, and every time I have gone or stayed there for any length of time, there's been problems in the Middle East. And then... After I went there, I started really reading my Bible and found out there's always been problems in the Middle East. Israel has always been this pot of contention with nations around her since the beginning. And the Bible promises will be up till the very end. But once again, the eyes of the world have been focused on the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, and the problems that are going on within its borders. You may, if you know your Bible right, go back in your mind, not opening your Bible now in this dark room, but in your mind to a prophecy given in Ezekiel 37. When the prophet Ezekiel was shown in a vision a valley of dry bones, and God said, what do you see, Ezekiel? He said, I see a bunch of dry bones. He said, good, you got that right. Now I want you to prophesy over the bones. Excuse me, God. I mean, these are bones. These are dead people. You want me to like preach a message to them? That's right. I want you to give a message, preach a sermon, prophesy over these dry bones. And he prophesied over them and life came back into these bones. Sinews grew upon them. They became living people and a great army. And God says, I'm going to do that to the nation of Israel. Though they're scattered throughout the world and effectively they are dead as a nation, there will come a time when I will bring them back into their own land, breathe life into them, and they will be a nation once again. That happened, and there is no disputing the fact that May 14th, 1948, is that epic date when the United Nations 
of the world recognized the emergent state of the nation of Israel that is with us today. However, just like in old times, that little nation is living very precariously over there in the Middle East. She is surrounded by enemies. And the very next chapter, Ezekiel chapter 38, describes that the nation of Israel will be besieged by her neighbors and other countries in the latter times. Listen to this prediction. It comes from the book of Zechariah chapter 12. The Lord says, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all of the peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it. Now we have and we have had and we're seeing some interesting developments happening over in Israel. It's kind of all started, didn't all start, but it kind of came to a head recently when a guy by the name of General Ariel Sharon walked up onto the Temple Mount one day. And it was his legal right to do it. The Temple Mount is still, in effect, run by the nation of Israel, not the Muslims. They have graciously allowed the Muslims to stay there after Israel was attacked in the past. They allowed them to keep their holy site. But Ariel Sharon went up to the Temple Mount and kind of made a big statement that we can come up here anytime and it's a holy place for the Jews, etc. Which caused rioting all over the Muslim world. In fact, the day that he went up there, uh, the news showed stones being hurled at Israeli soldiers and Israeli soldiers having guns with plastic bullets, rubber bullets, shooting back at them, so that the United Nations, in a vote 14 to 0, condemned Israel for using unnecessary force against the Palestinians. What you're not told is that there were already piles of stones that had been piled up on top of the Temple Mount before all this happened. And it's important you realize that because if you ever gone to the Temple Mount, you won't find a single stone anywhere. It's not like open dirt area. It's all paved stone. There are no stones as far as debris on the entire Temple Mount. But they had stones piled up there because they had been hurling stones off onto the Western Wall where the Jews worshipped in the past and they were ready to do it again. Sharon came up. They started hurling the stones at citizens, at soldiers. And as soon as the soldiers took out a gun, CNN was there to show you the unnecessary force used against them. That's what's going on over in Israel. Other things are happening. Syria, for a long time, and still is now, preparing for war against Israel. They have shown themselves to do that. They have postured themselves. They have been reticent to join the peace negotiations for a long time now. More recently, the Chinese are forming bonds, alliances with the Syrians in hopes to strengthen Syria against the nation of Israel. Furthermore, countries like Iran and Iraq, who have been at odds with each other, are trying to heal their difficulties, their past problems, to form a stronger military confederacy against Israel. Even Egypt, who in the past, because of the Camp David Accords, had been allies with Israel. The Prime Minister, 
And the defense minister has said, prepare for war to its citizens, including prepare for war against Israel. Saddam Hussein, ever heard that name? Saddam Hussein has asked the Arab neighbors around Israel for a spot of land close to Israel that they could set up their military encampments. They've asked the neighbors of Israel to allow him to put an end to the nation of Israel. He says, just give me a little bit of time. It won't take long. We've got all that it takes. Give me some land. Let us set up an encampment there. You give us your support. You stay out of it. And once and for all, we can destroy Zionism. And so Israel finds itself, interestingly, in this precarious predicament of one tiny nation the size of about New Jersey surrounded by large enemies all around whose only desire is to see them absolutely annihilated and destroyed. Now, Ezekiel 38 promises that nations like Russia, Iran, Ethiopia, Libya, and Turkey, Islamic nations, will gather themselves in the last days against Israel and march in against her. It will be, I believe, a religious war. It will be Islam against Judaism, trying to take out Zionism altogether. Recently, Russian has sent emissaries to the Gaza Strip in a plane, an official plane from Russia, flanked by military planes from Russia to lend their support for the Palestinians in that area. And the Arab nations have urged the Palestinians living in Ramallah, living in Gaza, living in places like Hebron and Bethlehem, to keep up the intifada, to keep resisting, to keep lashing out as much as they can against Israel. Back in the Bible, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel got a vision, a promise actually by an angel, an emissary from God. And the message was in Daniel 9, beginning around verse 25 through 28, 77s. Seventy periods of seven years are determined upon the nation of Israel to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to break, bring in reconciliation for iniquity, to anoint the most holy. No one understand this was the message to Daniel. From the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be 69 sets of those seven years or 483 years. And as we have told you before, if you look back in Nehemiah chapter 1, when Artaxerxes gave the commandment for the Jews to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, like the prophecy said. If you were to count 483 years later, in fact, to the very day, 173,880 days from March 14th, 445 B.C., when Artaxerxes gave the commandment, if you count that many days, you come to April 6th, 32 A.D., the very day, and we can document it, when Jesus Christ sat on a donkey and rode into Jerusalem in the prophecy, in the scripture I just mentioned to you, and wept over Jerusalem as people said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's 69 of those sevens. There is still a, a, a period left. There is one seven-year period that has not happened yet. The 70th week of Daniel, or a period of seven years, 
when the Bible says the prince of the people who is to come, the Antichrist, will make a covenant with the Jewish people. It'll last seven years. In the middle of the covenant, at the three and a half year mark, he will break his covenant with the nation of Israel. He will proclaim himself dictator. He will demand that he himself is worshipped. That's why Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation as spoken of by Daniel the prophet, flee, man. Don't even stop and get your lunch or your thermos or your cell phone or your jacket. Just get out of Jerusalem if you're there because of that time and the difficulty that will arise. Jesus predicted it. The prophets predicted it. The nation of Israel has seen Gentile oppression for years. And Jesus, or, uh, yeah, Jesus said that, uh, Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, Jerusalem is now under Israeli hands, not Gentile hands, but her own hands. But the conflict, the bone of contention, is especially the Temple Mount. And what will happen to Jerusalem, but principally the Temple Mount? The bone of contention. Who will occupy that site? Who will be in charge of Jerusalem? That's why the prophet said, as God instructed him, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all the nations of the world, and they'll gather against it. And you're watching that, and you will watch more of it. As popular opinion in this country and other countries will finally say, you know, Israel is the stumbling stone here. Let's get rid of it. That's what has been happening as predicted by the scriptures. Next question is, so what? So what? Okay, it's happening. Well, we just watch it happen, right? No. Know this. It is inevitable. Jesus Christ is coming. Be sure of that and love His appearing. And I wonder how many Christians love the idea that that imaginary world I drew at the beginning of this message isn't really so imaginary. It will happen and their Christ will rule and reign. I wonder how many Christians are really excited about that coming event. I say that because I remember a gal. She was all excited about Jesus coming back, but she was single and she said, I want the Lord to come back, but he better not come back before I can get married or I'm going to be really mad at him. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let, let everything continue, Lord. I, I got to get married first. This is much more important than your kingdom. Hello. This is what the Bible says. Paul said, finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. Did you notice the description of Christians as those who love his coming? Do you love his coming? Are you looking for it? Some people, even those who come to churches, study prophecy, put intellectual facts in their heads, and they're looking at it. They see the newspaper events. They see it unfolding. But they're not looking for it. You know there's a difference between looking at something and looking for something. And the best illustration I can think of is a wedding. A lot of people come to weddings, and most of the people that come to weddings look at it. They're there to observe it. There's people in the audience, there's people in the family, there's the preacher, he ought to be there. 
Of course, there was one time when I absolutely forgot I had a wedding and I missed the entire thing. And I was told afterwards, you were supposed to be there and I wasn't. But I'll tell you, there's a big difference between late preachers or absent ones and even the crowd who comes to a wedding and looks at it and the bride and groom in the wedding. They're not just looking at it. The bride's looking for it. She has a whole different perspective of that gathering together. And the church of Jesus Christ ought to be looking for his return, loving his appearing. The final question is now what? If that is what is happening, and the so what is because we are his children, it is predicted, the other things he predicted has come to pass, we ought to love his appearing. Now what? What do we do with all that? That's what Peter asked. Peter asked that question in the New Testament when he wrote in Second Peter chapter 3, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be, listen, in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? He asked the same question. If that's true, and you are who you say you are, how ought you to live in light of that? It's awfully distressing as a pastor. To see so often people in the church modeling the exact kind of behavior as that in the world. In their business ethics. In their inability to get along with family members. In their divorce statistics. And so we wonder, does Jesus really make a difference? Does Christianity really work? Because if it really worked, there ought to be a marked difference. As Peter said, Holy conduct and godliness. Now what? What do we do? This is 2001, the coming of a millennium, and we're waiting for the return of Christ and the ultimate millennium. We are to live with one eye up and one eye down. What I mean by that is Jesus gave us the permission when these things begin to take place, look up, lift up your heads in anticipation, getting ready. Because your redemption is at hand. In Romans 13, the Bible says our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And that's what I tell people when they say, you know, this is all good and fine, this prophecy stuff. But, you know, my grandmother used to talk about that. And, you know, Paul used to talk about that. Let's go back a couple thousand years. Paul believed Jesus was coming. Well, you know what? All I can say is that if that was true 1,900 years ago, how more true it is tonight. If Jesus was coming soon 2,000 years ago, you can figure the rest out, can't you? 2,000 years have gone by. That's called God's grace, His patience, His desire to get a lot of people saved. We're living on borrowed time. The events are lining up. And then, and then, not only one eye up, but one eye on our earth with the responsibility and a diligence to tell people about Christ in, in a variety of ways. Jesus said, occupy till I come. In fact, Jesus said, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close in on you 
unexpectedly. Until Jesus comes and we anticipate and we talk about it, and we sing about it, and we're excited about it, we ought to tell a whole lot of other people because there's coming a time when that day of grace will be closed. And we don't want to be choked up with this world so much that we're ineffective in getting people into the next kingdom. And yet, there are those Christians who it seems have too much of Jesus Christ to be happy in the world, but they still have too much of the world in them to be contented in Christ. I say, let's draw a line tonight and say, whose side are you on? If you're on the world side, then go for it. Sin as hard as you can and have the best time sinning you can. Because it's the last good time you'll ever see when eternity calls your name. You might as well have it now if that's your choice. Or get on the other side of the line. Defect from the kingdom of darkness. Stand on the right side and say and mean it and live it as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then let's tell people about it. Let's tell people how to get there with us. Isn't the height of selfishness being content to go to heaven alone? Now, when we talk about evangelism, let me tell you, there's a variety of ways it can be done. Sky's the limit. Doesn't mean you have to find a pulpit and carry it around with you at work and set it up as, excuse me, I'd like to preach a message to you. With your little megaphone, you can do it at work, in your lifestyle, as a businessman, as a secretary, through the arts. In fact, we have a crazy little band that we bring around the world with us called the Lively Hearts Club Band, and we just have a lot of fun with it, but we've seen a lot of people come to Christ because they think, wait a minute, you're a pastor, you're kind of crazy, you're singing that kind of music, but you're changing the words, and I've just got to see this for myself. And so they'll come out, and many times God will touch their hearts, but be creative 